0: Well, hopefully on your way in, you got a chance to grab some pastries, something good. There were a bunch of good ones. There were apple fritters back there. I saw those this morning. So we are really excited to share something with you all. Um, We have something that has happened that honestly is going to change the trajectory of our church um, in a number of ways. And so... Here's what it is. We have been offered an incredible gift a church building and a fellowship hall that is attached to that in the milk district, which will be in the middle of a brand new neighborhood. Amazing. Yes. And so ultimately, that is about a $1.5 to $2 million asset that is being given to us. And in addition, they're also giving us a $250,000 lead gift for renovation on the building. Yes. And we might reveal those folks to you eventually. So, they just might be in here somewhere. Um, We wanted you to know, we have known about this for a while, but we have done tons and tons of research and asked people that have been here, um, that have been in similar situations. We have discussed this project with the builders, with city planners, um, the president of the Milk District. Uh, we've even already had a community meeting with all the neighbors that are surrounding that area that went extremely well. And so on March 22nd, so two weeks from now, here on a Sunday morning, we're going to have what we are going to call a congregational meeting, and we're going to talk all about this Project. And so we're going to reveal and show you guys the site plan, okay? So the entire site, the floor plan for the church sanctuary, and then the conceptual renderings that have been done for the front lobby and kind of our venue area. And then you'll also see renderings of the neighborhood, the single family homes, and the townhomes that are gonna be there. And so visually you get a chance to see everything that is going on. So it's really gonna be an exciting morning. So anybody that's ever been here that that you know, invite them to this. There are so many people behind the scenes over the years that helped us even get to this point. And so we would love for them to be a part of it, to find out what's happening, or any of your friends that you've been wanting to invite on a Sunday morning. This will be an opportunity for them to hear for the first time with all of us kind of where we're going. So that's March 22nd. Coming up really soon, two weeks, and we're going to worship, we're going to pray together, and we're going to talk all about this, and you guys will get to see all of those visuals. So, John is going to pray for us.
1: How about another round of applause, just for the opportunity. (laughs) Um, Before I pray over you guys, I want you to look at Romans chapter 15, verse 13. Says, now may the God of what? The God of hope. May he fill you. Fill. Fill as in overflowing. May he fill you with all joy and peace. All joy and peace in believing, that is trusting, so that you may what? Abound in hope. How? by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a gigundus offer of God to move in us and it is entirely possible because of the Holy Spirit. So, can I pray over you right now? Bow your heads. Great God of the impossible, creator, God, God who sent Jesus, God of the cross, God of the kingdom, God of new life and new beginnings, put your hand on us. Tinker with our hearts this morning. Invite us no matter where we're at this morning. To believe that you're as good as you reveal yourself to be. Lift us to a place of hope because of who you are, because of what you've said, and because of what you've done. We pray these things in the great magnificent name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, this morning, as some of you know, we were supposed to be in the Galatian series. And just to give you some backdrop on that, we may or may not come back to it. But as a pastor, one of the things I like to do is stay in touch with where we're at. And I felt like we needed to shift to a new place at this point. So bear with me, Uh, You can either go back to Galatians and read it yourself, or we might come back to it. I can't promise anything. But our series that begins today is called Elevate. Elevate. That's me right there. There. Now, Marianne's like, no, that is not you. That is not me. I did not have the longest selfie stick ever there. But I've had many experiences with mountains. My salvation came to me on a mountain. In Colorado Springs, there on the top of the mountain, looking out at the stars, which had always been there, but I had apparently never noticed, I came to believe. Years later, when I was facing a time of discouragement, where did I go? The mountains. On my sabbatical that ended about five months ago, where did I go and almost die? The mountains. And here we are in Orlando, Florida with no mountains. How many of you have ever climbed a mountain? Raise your hand. Okay, I want you to tell me what, in one word, what was your climb like? The climb of your mountain. What was that like? Long, Long, challenging, torture. Torture. (laughs) That is such a good word. Oh my goodness, mine was exhausting, depleting, but here's what happened. When you reach the top of that mountain, when you take some risks risks, and you climb up that mountain and you get to the top, you have a different perspective, don't you? You can see that the world was there the whole time. The beauty of the stars was there the whole time. But it's through that elevation to that mountaintop that we see life differently and see God differently and see perspective differently. It's as if on the top of that mountain, I realize God is bigger. He is bigger than I have experienced. He is infinitely greater than anything that I can imagine. He's the sort of God that drops a church in your lap. So this morning, what has elevated me is the promises of God. I don't know that I've ever spoken on this. Some of you may be veterans with the promises of God. Some of you may never have heard a talk that you're about to hear. But the promises of God are meant to do something. They invite us up the mountain. They say, hey, we're done with playing small. We're done with living in fear. We're going to treat God as if He's as big as He actually is. The promises of God say, come up here to the top of this mountain. You be you, I will be me, and we will see what happens. There's over 3,000 promises in the Scripture. Waiting, just waiting for someone to audaciously grab hold. My first experience with uh, the promises of God came with this man here, a guy that almost no one in this room knows except perhaps Jim Porman. This man's name is Rob Lamp. Sorry, Don and Steve. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know him too. Anyway, Rob was the drummer in the band uh, in the church, first church I was involved in at uh, The Ohio State University. And so I got to be honest, just to come clean here, the reason I became a weekly church attender don't anyone... No, go ahead and feel guilty if you don't come every week for just a minute. The reason I became a weekly church tender really had to do with the drumming. <laughs> I mean, I just got to admit. So, Keith, wherever you're at, thank you. I, I came because I love the drumming, but I gained a relationship with Rob. And Rob, at one point, shared with me the heartache of his life. And as a married man, married to Sue, he said, we... We've been told we can't have children. And it's heartbreaking to hear that. We have people who have experienced that pain and also the joy of seeing God come through. So Rob shared that, but he introduced me to the promises of God because he said, I am trusting Scripture. I'm trusting God to provide here in this area of impossibility. And he shared this verse out of Jeremiah chapter 32. Ah, Lord God, God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm and nothing is too hard for you. Can we just read that last sentence together? Nothing is too hard for you. And so Rob shared that with me and we were not on the same camp, same part of the church and so we didn't get together very regularly and time went by. And then the church announced a special Sunday and Rob was going to do the special thing. So I came not knowing what to expect and the stage was empty except for a piano. And then Rob walked out onto the stage carrying the fulfillment of the promise that he had trusted and put his little daughter on the piano and sang that verse to the congregation. And I remember that moment. I didn't know how to process it. It was, it was so powerful. I have an image here. Um, so this is a while ago, okay? This is before Facebook. Uh, before Snapchat, Instagram, the internet, email. So, I don't know if I'm getting the pronunciation right, but we had these things called camera. Is that, Am I saying that right? <laughs> so, this is like a, a walk back in time, right? Look how old this is. But what a beautiful moment when he walked out there and put his daughter on the piano, and sang to us. And I remember it just provoked, provoked my spirit. I ran into Rob uh, years and years later. I hadn't seen him in about 20 years. And we were at BW3s on I-Drive, which is called Columbus South. Okay, There's got to be a Buckeye fan here somewhere. It's called Columbus, and thank you, thank you. And so the, the room was wall-to-wall Buckeye fans watching a big game. Me and my son were there, and it was packed, and we had to wait for a table. But finally, the waitress came over and said, That table right there, that's yours. I could see it was empty. It's going to be ours in just a minute. And right before we walked over there, two dudes swooped in. And I'm like, Oh, no, you're not taking my table. So I went over to the dudes, and I said, "This is. I'm sorry, this is my table. And the guy just stepped back, and he said, John Heaver? And I looked at him, and it was Rob Lamp. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And so he filled me in on the rest of this story, and we watched the game together. It was a beautiful thing. But I found myself questioning in my mind, like, how does this work? Like, what about people where the miracle doesn't happen? And are you sure that was even a promise? It kind of looked like a truth statement to me. Who was that written to? Was that written to you or to Jeremiah? How do we process this thing? Are these like blank checks? What do we do? And what do we do with what we all know is here in our hearts when we consider a promise? I'm afraid. I'm afraid God's not going to show up. I'm afraid I'm going to feel silly for... Trusting God. And so I decided I needed to live this thing out. I wanted, I wanted to have my own experiences. I wanted to have God come through for me. So one day I was reading Matthew chapter 6. Oh, I forgot. I want to just show you. Can we go back just a couple slides? So here's uh, the miracle daughter on the left holding her own miracle daughter. And here's the entire lamp clan. clan. Oh, it's beautiful what God did. I'm glad He chose the risk, aren't you? Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This is the first time I chose to take a risk for God. Here's the context. I had just been accepted into the physical therapy program at The Ohio State University, and it was more competitive than getting into medical school. So it was like a big deal. So I got in, and some buddies of mine said, We want to plant a church. We're going to move over to Bowling Green, Ohio, and we're going to start a new church. By the way, that church in Bowling Green, where Jim is from and Allison is from, has gone on to plant many, many churches. And just scores of people have gone into ministry, and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people have come to know Jesus through that one little church. So my friends said, we're going to move over to Bowling Green and start a new church. We want you to come with us. And I said, you don't understand. I just got accepted into this physical therapy program. But as I began to think about this promise, it's like, this is my opportunity to see that God is real. And so I decided to take the risk and say, all right, God, here we go. I don't know what mom and dad are going to say, but I'm going to say no to Ohio State. I'm going to move to Bowling Green. I'm going to apply to the physical therapy program there. And it was kind of discouraging when I got waitlisted. When I got this piece of paper that said, you were not accepted into the program. You're on a wait list. So I called the program, and I said, help me understand where I'm at. What are my chances for getting in? And she said, you're number seven on the list. Well, what does that mean? And she laughed. It's interesting to me now to look back. I remember her laugh. She laughed and said, well, no one's ever gotten in that low on the wait list before. And I got off the phone, and I was in a haze. I thought God was faithful. I thought God promised me this. Have I misapplied Scripture? What have I done? What do I do? I walked outside, and I needed to work on my car because... There was some water in the gas tank. And so I my plan was to take this thing product called water zorb and pour it into the gas tank and dry up the drops of water that must have been in the gas tank. However, in my mental funk, I walked over to the car and poured the water zorb into the radiator. The reason Jim's laughing is because only John could do anything like that, right? Destroying the car, destroying the radiator. It took about 30 seconds, and then there was, a, there was this and smoke was billowing from my car. And I'm looking at my car standing on the lawn in this mental funk, I'm thinking about Matthew 6.33. It's like, where is God in all of this? And I made a decision right there. I decided that God's word was a greater reality than the circumstances that I was facing. And I decided there on my lawn, 1021 Clots Road, I decided that I would not yield to fear and that I would trust God to come through for me personally. I called the laughing lady back up at the appointed time, and, um, and she said, well, good news, sort of. We've had five people drop out. Never had that happen before. You still need one more to get in. Oh, wait a minute. The mail just arrived. I'm not making this up. This is what happened. The mail arrives as I'm on the phone with the laughing lady. And she's opening up the mail, and I, I have to testify. I have to tell the truth. I had a big smile on my face because it's like, I am so in. I am so in. I know I'm in. And she said, congratulations. You're the first person to be waitlisted to number seven to get in the program. I want want to orient you to what I want to share with you right now. We're going to look at the five big promises that have shaped my journey. The five big promises. Feel free to take them. Make them yours. Own them. Possess them. Let them work on your heart. Let them work you over. Let them make a new reality for you being the Word of God, not what you experience and what you see. Cling to them. Trust in them. Hope in them quote them back to God. He likes that. Quote them in prayer. Rely upon them. And then we're going to look at the two biggest mistakes people make in interpreting the promises of God, because we can make mistakes. Next week, we're going to continue on with Abraham. We're going to look how the promise is the foundation of our whole journey, and we're going to go further into the theology behind claiming promises Okay, here's the first. Here's the first. God promises He will never let go of us. He will never, ever let go of us. Once we've come to that sacred moment, that place where you surrender your life to Jesus, that place where you realize my sin is as real as the blood that Jesus spilt, and my decision that I must make I must respond to this. I can't just know stuff about God. I've got to surrender my life and come to Him and lay my life down at His feet as King. And once we do that, once we become one of His followers, He promises that He will never, ever, ever let go of us. Let's look at the Gospel of John. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand my Father, who has given them to me, verse 30, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, and so you have right here in Jesus' hand, that's where you're at, and that hand is closed, and the hand of the Father is wrapped around the hand of the Son. Now, think about this. As a human being, how big does Jesus need to be to make that promise? To say that every person that's going to believe in me after I die, every person that puts their faith in me, I'm going to hold on to them and not lose a single one. Why, he'd have to be God, which he is. That's the first promise that has come to my aid when I have been tempted to think, man, I'm not going to make it. Here's the second God promises He will always show up in times of temptation. He will always show up in times of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. We're all going through the same stuff. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now look at this. With the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How big must God be for Paul to say, for every single Christian everywhere in the world, no matter what they're facing, God is always right there by their side, always speaking to them, always saying, here's the way of escape. You don't have to tank your life. You don't have to look at that. You don't have to give in to what you're feeling right now. This has been so helpful to me, because when I'm going through any kind of temptation, I can pray this and say, God, what is the way of escape? What are you saying right now? Here's the third one. God promises to give us wisdom. He promises to give us wisdom if we ask. Did you know that? You're like, you have a hotline to God. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. There is no scripture that I quote back to God more than James 1, 5. I say this and I ask for wisdom all of the time. This is a promise that we can claim as a church, is it not? Like right now, we could do this right? Let's bow our heads. Holy and great Father, before this crowd of people, I have brought Your Word in front of our eyes, and I have told these people that You're big enough to speak to us and to give us insight and wisdom right now right now for the decisions we have to make, right now for this scary process with this building, right now for this beautiful opportunity. How do we relate to the neighborhood? How do we serve people? How can we be more inclusive? What course corrections must we make? I ask for wisdom right now on behalf of this church, for the leaders of this church, And for me, would you give such wisdom that all of us would be able to say, these dudes got really smart really quick. What happened? We look to you. We ask you for that in Jesus' holy name. Thank you for praying that with me. Fourthly, God promises to never leave nor forsake us, but always be available to help. There's something specific I want you to see here. I felt prompted as I was praying about this teaching the other day, because we have some of us that are just in a bad place. We have some of us that are just depleted for whatever reason why. We're just tanked. We're needing spiritual revival. What do we do? Well, Hebrews tells us this. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say the Lord is, what's that next word? My helper. He is my helper. God, I need help in my marriage. God, I need help with my kids. God, I need help with leading. God, I need help with my emotions. I need help. Isn't that amazing that God, the God of the universe, the God that created stars would say, hey, I'm here for you. And what this did for me on the sabbatical was this. My heart was in a junky place. It was messed up. And I did something that was very scary because I'm a problem solver. Any of you guys problem solvers? Any of you like lists? Yeah, thank you. And so, like, I had this plan. Here's what I'm going to do to fix my heart. And it's like God said, what are you doing? I will fix your heart. You cannot fix your heart. Can you guys agree with me that my heart is in a different place than it was six months ago? Can you, do you see that? Because I took a moment of time. Yeah, praise God. I, I said, I, I remember it was just like this epiphany. It's like, why don't you trust me? I remember laughing. It's like, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this. And it's like the Lord's saying, can you trust me with your heart? And it's like, ah. I forgot you. Um, Yes. Can you pray for your friends that are in a bad place? And can you share the scripture with them? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Last one is this of my big five. God promises to finish the good work he has begun in us. God is no quitter. He keeps going. Look at the beauty and the majesty of Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began, read it with me, a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, of Jesus Christ. It is a good work. Who began that work? He did, not you. I never would have chosen this path. God called me, opened my eyes to reality. Open my eyes to the cross. Open my eyes to my sin. Open my eyes to the reality of the kingdom that was being offered me. He began a good work in me, and he will get it done. I am not who I am meant to be yet. You are not who you are meant to be yet. But he who began the good work will complete it. And I don't know about you guys. I get jacked up thinking about that. I get jacked up thinking about God being at work. And I just got to say... I hate some of the stuff God takes me through. This whole building thing scares me to death. And it's like God presses me against the wall and then stuff starts leaking out of me that I love. It's like, you know what you're doing. He knows what he's doing. How big God must be. How big God must be. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. How do those lyrics go? You never stop, you never stop working. You're the way maker, miracle worker. What was that? Promise keeper, light in the dark. We're going to sing that here in a few minutes. All right, so here's a question we've got to ask, and I think this is very helpful as we think about God's promises. The question is this, where are we at in God's story? Where are we at in the story that God is telling? The story is this, is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's a better story than thinking that you, with the brilliance of your human body, are the result of random chance. It is a better story than saying there is no such thing as sin or evil in the world. How blind we must be to say a different story than that. God's story has four chapters. It is creation. God made the world, you and me, and everything in it. Humanity fell. Sin entered the world. The world became broken. We live in a broken world. Chapter 3, redemption. God sends Jesus to the cross, to rescue our souls, to change individuals, not the world, individuals who will then go about changing the world. Chapter 4, Jesus comes back in restoration and changes the world. That's our story. But here's the point. The king has already come, right? The king has already arrived. The cross has already happened. So we can look backward at the cross and know we have a promise-keeping God, right? We have a God who's already shown up, and the way He showed up should teach us something about the way He's going to show up in our lives. Remember the disciples? Because when the cross came, they're like, man, this story sucks. We thought you were the one. Oh, this is horrible. And then the resurrection happened, right? Okay, so what we live in now We live in a a blend of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2, the fall, our world is still broken. Chapter 3, redemption, the kingdom is advancing. So we live in what is called now by theologians, the now and not yet. The kingdom, the now and the not yet. The kingdom has come, and it's saving human beings, but it's not fully come so that the world is restored. It's come, but not completely. We're changed but not absolutely. We live in this tension of a fallen world and yet a very real experience with Jesus, right? You all with me here? That's where we're at. So let me drop some big words on you because you guys are really smart and you can handle it, right? An under-realized eschatology basically means these are people that live and act as if they're in chapter 2, as if the world is fallen and confusing confusing and broken, but they don't live as if chapter 3 has happened. They're not asking God to move in their life. They're not clinging to promises. They're not living as if the kingdom has actually come. They're living normal human lives. And the cross ruins us for normal life. Do not live as if the cross has not happened. Embrace the promises. On the other hand, some people live as if they're not in chapter 2, the fall, but they're in chapter 4, the restoration. As if heaven has come and there's no mission. People that have an overrealized eschatology are all about their own personal prosperity as if our happiness is the end goal, and they're not on mission. They don't know that, yes, in this world, we will have heartache, we will have confusion. That is the tension that we must live with. And so this brings us to 2 Peter. God's divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given all that He can give through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, that through them, through these promises, you may become, again, read this with me, partakers of the divine nature. In other words, that you would experience God. You don't become God. Of course not. But isn't that provocative language there? It's like God saying, I want you to experience more. I want you to actually escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And how do you escape and how do you experience this new life in the kingdom? It's through God's promises. Let me give you an example. I want to give you two very practical examples. Jeremiah 33.3. 3. Call to me. This is God speaking. Call to me and I will answer you. And I will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Is that a big promise? That's a pretty huge promise, isn't it? That promise is meant to provoke you to treat God as if you do have a hotline. As if God is real. As if God can speak to us and direct us through His Word and through His Spirit. Call to me and I will show up. Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I will direct your life. My eye is on you. Will you trust me? Will you call out to me? Guys, my desire is to know Jesus Christ. I want to know Him who died for me. I want to experience His heart. I want to see the tears well up in someone else's eyes when I tell them what my king has done for me. I want to experience his spirit living inside of me, calling me up the mountain. We are done in the valley. We are mountain climbers. And we're going to push up the mountain. And we hope people come with us because that's where we're going. Up the mountain where God calls us to know him and promises to lead us. This last week, I went to the Downtown Life Group and Laura Hollenberger shared about how we can interpret Scripture well. And one of the things that happened was we have such vulnerability in our life groups that people were willing to say, you know, reading Scripture is hard. I don't feel like it. It's like going to the gym. You just do it because you need to do it, and you don't see instant results sometimes. And we all acknowledged that Netflix has an entertainment value that is compelling. And it was so beautiful for us all to acknowledge there is a real struggle here. But this is where the promises of God provoke me. Because I don't wake up feeling all happy. I wake up with a mild state of depression that I've had all of my life. I wake up, and then I have coffee, begin to come back. And then these verses begin to descend on my mind. It's like, call to me, and I will answer you. And I don't know who else is claiming these promises, but I'm gonna. And so I walk outside saying, God, you promised. Would you speak to me Because I'm calling to you, and you said you'd answer. And I go out driven by the promises. What's that one song we sing? Plagued by your promises? They're inviting. They're provoking us. All right. Got just a few minutes left. I want to share the biggest mistakes that we can make. The biggest mistakes that we can make in, in interpreting God's promises This first one is the biggest one. You may think I'm a heretic for just a few moments. I am not. I will balance what I'm going to say in point number one with point number two. But I'm being very intentional here on point number one. I want you to feel like this is the absolute biggest mistake I could possibly make is this, number one, not claiming God's promises because they weren't written to you. If you think about it, what promise is written to you? Let's start with Jeremiah 33.3. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. Was that written to you? No. It wasn't written to you. Neither was Psalm 32. Written by David. Written for his people in that time. Jeremiah was not thinking of you. He was thinking of his people. Matthew 6.33, that verse that I claimed as my own was not written to me. Jesus was not speaking to me. He was speaking to His disciples 2,000 years ago. And so the door is open for us to explain away every single promise and to say none of it relates to me. That's the biggest mistake you can make. God has given these promises so that God's people can think Maybe I should apply this to my life. Do you, do you catch what I'm saying? The biggest mistake you can make is to get hung up on the theology. I'm going to give you theology this week and next. To have the skills of knowing, okay, so what do I not claim? But I just want you to, I want to say this loud and clear. The biggest mistake you can make is to just not claim to begin with. Our view of inspiration is that Jeremiah was inspired by God to speak to his people. Matthew was inspired by God to speak to his people. There was a primary author, Matthew and Jeremiah, but over his shoulder was a second author. And that second author, the living God, was thinking of you and me. And so Matthew 6.33 not spoken to us, can be claimed by us, because God is watching over His Word in order to fulfill it. So, the second mistake that we can make is this, ignoring context as if written directly to you. If we don't do the hard work of saying, who is this written to, we're apt to misapply Scripture. So, there are questions that we need to ask, like, who is saying this? Who are they writing to? What is the context? How would I apply this to my life? We will unpack this more deeply next week, but I just want to give you one silly example. Exodus fourteen fourteen. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Isn't that a great promise? Do you see how easy it would be to misapply this? God's going to fight for me. God gave me a church. God's going to paint my church. God's going to clean out my church. No, there's a part that's asked of us as well. And without doing the hard work of asking about context, we claim that verse, not realizing that that was one moment, and then a few chapters later, God tells the people, okay, you got to fight now. Do you see what I'm saying? We need to be careful in our understanding of how to interpret these things. Okay, I want you to look at this quote by Matthew Henry. It's by turning God's promises into petitions. It's by taking God's promise and then taking it to God and saying, God, I pray this. I ask you to do this in my life. It's by turning promises into petitions that they're turned into performances. That requires God stepping up, and that requires us stepping out. Both are necessary for the fulfillment of the promise. Let's go back to this image of the now and the not yet. The kingdom, the now and the not yet. I just want to share an observation in my experience of God. What time is it there? It's getting late. My experience of God is He loves to come through at the last moment. God loves to create impossible situations so that when a church is dropped in our lap, we know who did it. We know ultimately who did that dropping. When our congregation is effective and reaches people that we know and we give credit to the one who is behind it all. Our part is to cling to the promises to step out in faith, and God will meet us there. As the band comes out and prepares to lead us in worship, I want us just to pause. In the quietness of your heart, what is your takeaway from this morning? What was that one thing that was said that was meant for you, and you know that? What promise was given that you feel provoked to begin to trust God? What is the specific area of your life? Amen. What is that specific place in your life? Why don't you guys stand with us? We're gonna sing a song that really captures what we're wanting to express here. It's an old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision. We cannot remain in the valley. Our vision is Jesus Christ to know with him, to know him, to walk with him, and to see him work through us. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me as we move into worship? Great God, we thank you for the bloody cross. I hate to think where I would be right now were it not for the power of forgiveness, were it not for you peeling back the blinders on my eyes. Maybe some of us here do not know you in that way, and we pray, would you open their eyes to Christ crucified, As we come now into worship, into your presence, though your presence fills heaven and earth, it is here acutely. Would you draw our hearts into worship? Through the Holy Spirit, would you invite us to trust you? As we come and we sing of your greatness, may your greatness descend deeply into our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we want to take communion together. As you come to the table, I want you to remember the words of the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, when life was chaos and did not make any sense at all. And he said, this is my body, which has been, which is broken for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. And we've gathered today because of that chaos because of that confusing moment, which days later would be followed by resurrection. As you approach this table, I invite you to think personally about the great love that has been shown you, the precious blood that has been shed for you, the delight of the Father's heart in welcoming you as his child, you're invited to feast at this table, to eat the bread that is true bread, to drink the blood that changes the soul. Remember Jesus as we approach the table. We invite you now to do so.